Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. You feel like a failure. This is the largest problem with conversion therapy is that our suicide rates are astronomical compared to those who have not gone through conversion therapy. And this is in large part because you feel like a failure. Not only does your family think that you failed to do what they helped you set out to do, but you similarly feel like you couldn't do what your God, your family, and you ultimately wanted to do, which was to change. Now I understand there was nothing to change, but back then it was debilitatingly depressing. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Thorne. On this edition of Outcasting, we continue our conversation about conversion therapy, the practice of trying to change someone's sexuality from gay or bisexual to straight. Homosexuality used to be defined as a mental disorder, and many psychiatrists used to practice conversion therapy. The practice is now widely discredited within the medical and mental health professions, but it still exists throughout the country, now usually associated with religious institutions rather than medical institutions. What actually happens during conversion therapy, and what effects do these practices have on young people? On the previous two editions of Outcasting, our guest was Jack Drescher, a gay psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. Dr. Drescher has been working with LGBTQ patients for over 30 years and writing about conversion therapy for over 20 years. If you missed it on the air, you can listen to his interview on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Dr. Drescher's interview gives an expert and technical perspective on conversion therapy. Now, we turn to the personal story of Sam Brinton, who was subjected to conversion therapy as a child and survived to tell about it. Sam, who uses they-them pronouns, founded and leads the 50 Bills 50 States campaign, which aims to bring legislation that bans conversion therapy to all 50 states. They talked with Outcaster Andrew. This is part one of that interview. The series will conclude next month with the rest of Andrew's interview with Sam and a discussion about the assumptions about LGBTQ identity that fuel the perceived need to turn gay people straight. Sam Brinton, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. How would you define conversion therapy? Conversion therapy is the dangerous and discredited idea that you can change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity. It takes a lot of different forms. Sometimes it is physical, what we call like aversive therapy, where you try to associate a negative feeling or stimulus with something that has to do with the sexuality that you're trying to change. Sadly, it's still practiced all over the country. It's still legal to put children through this barbaric process. Uh, What methods have you heard of being used in conversion therapy? Conversion therapy takes so many different methods from so many different um, practitioners who are all trying to use snake oil to trick families into thinking that they can actually change a child. So some of those methods include heat being um, applied or cold being applied to a hand 
So that way you'll associate the feeling um, with what you might be seeing on a screen. Other times this is praying the gay away. So sitting in a church office trying to pray out a demon. Sometimes this is being sent to a camp where a person is taught to act more manly or act more femininely depending on the sex they were assigned at birth to try to stereotype a person into heterosexuality. It's all snake oil and it's all wrong, but it takes so many different forms, which makes it so hard to stop. And some conversion therapy is forced upon children by their parents and sometimes willing adults seek it out. So can you tell us a bit about these two types of situations and the similarities and differences between them? Yeah, so conversion therapy is a cultural phenomenon where because the option exists, people think they have to take it. So for some parents, they will force their child into conversion therapy either directly or indirectly. So sometimes they could basically say, well, if you don't go through conversion therapy, you can't live in this house. Or if you don't go through conversion therapy, we won't pay for your school anymore. This will force the child to basically experience conversion therapy to have sustenance and to live. For an adult, this can sometimes just be an option or a way out. This is culture telling them that they're not right the way they are and that there's something to change. This is based on historical ideas that uh, LGBTQ people were, were sick or had mental health challenges. Thankfully, back in the 1970s, every major medical association came forward and started to say that being LGBTQ was a natural part of um, biology and a natural part of existence, and that it was cultural pressure that actually causes a lot of the harms. So it's fascinating to think of conversion therapy as both an option and as a forced uh, practice, but it just really depends on what your situation is and where you are. Does that mean that you think that conversion therapy should be allowed to exist as long as it's consensual, even if it's not good? That's a really good question. I'm not saying that I think it should exist. I'm saying that it currently does. And basically... We have to change the national conversation around conversion therapy so that it doesn't even seem like an option. So getting into your own story, how accepting of LGBTQ people was the environment in which you grew up? LGBTQ people have always existed. Sometimes we've been celebrated, sometimes we've been hated. It just really depends on the day and the location. The same is kind of true for my story. I didn't even know I was coming out when I told my family that... Uh, I was really attracted to the boy next door because we hadn't talked about it. We didn't talk about sexuality. And so it wasn't that it was hated. It was just not a thing, except for once I had come out as, you know, liking that boy, I was immediately um, and quickly punished for that attraction. My father became very physically abusive, and it would lead to my mother putting me into conversion therapy to try to fix me, thinking that it would solve this problem. So I, I guess I kind of say that it moved from indifference to pure hatred of my sexuality in an instant. Do you think that your parents' responses were representative of most people's impressions of what it meant to be LGBTQ or what it was like? Well, that's a great question. At the time I, in the environment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think my story is typical of many who find that when confronted with an oppositional reality to what a parent had presupposed, 
the fear takes over, the anger takes over. So I think it's a common reaction for a family to be hurt by this idea that their child is not what they dreamed they would be. And it's how they manage that hurt that matters. That's the hard part. I think my family did it wrong, but some families do do it right. So can you tell us a little bit more about what your parents' reactions were when they found out about your sexuality? Sure. When my friends had all started to be really attracted to um, a dirty magazine that we found um, in the trash, I thought I was so holy and righteous that it didn't affect me. But I did tell my dad that I was attracted to the boy next door in the same kind of way, knowing that that was a sin, but not realizing just how much of a sin my parents would see it as. My father became extremely physically abusive and no one could protect me because I was the son of missionaries. And so everyone thought my parents were fine, upstanding people. I would walk into a conversion therapist's office with my mother um, at her behest because this was going to be better than physical abuse. It wasn't. I was told by my conversion therapist that I was the last gay child left alive, that um, the government had come through and killed off every gay child when they were found. And then I was told that the reason that all gay children were found and killed was because they uh, had brought AIDS into America. And so I now had AIDS. Uh, This was clearly not true as well, but it was great fear-mongering. And then to put icing on a horrible cake, the conversion therapist told me that the reason that the gays had brought AIDS into America was because they were abominations. And a lot of this I hadn't understood until he said the word abomination. I knew exactly what that was because I was very, very adamant in my faith and I knew exactly that abominations were hated by God and that that meant I was hated by God. It was beyond devastating. It would move from that type of talk therapy into physical therapy, physical aversive therapy, excuse me. The... Therapy would start with my hands being placed in ice while pictures of men holding hands were shown on a screen. So I'd associate the cold I was feeling with the images that I was seeing. When that wasn't enough, wires were wrapped around my hands and heat was turned on when pictures of men touching men were shown and heat was turned off when pictures of men touching women were shown. I was supposed to associate the pain with men and the comfort with women. And then when that wasn't enough, We moved into electroshock with needles stuck into my fingers and images of men having sex with men playing across the screen. It was horrifying um, is the only words for it. I screamed for my mother to make it stop, but she loved me so much and thought she was protecting me. And so she let that horrible conversion therapist do horrible things to me. So how easy or hard was it for your parents to find and access conversion therapy? I'll never know for sure, but it was very simple because of a lot of big national organizations that helped facilitate this. So during the time I was going through conversion therapy, there was a program called Exodus International, which had members in every single state and basically helped families and friends find a conversion therapist for a person. I don't know if my therapist was um, 
from Exodus International, but I do know that there were thousands and thousands of conversion therapists. Even today, we can easily track hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them all over the country. And so it wasn't too hard. So did you at any point resist being sent to conversion therapy? That's an interesting question. I resisted internally, but never very externally, because I didn't have very much of an option. I didn't want to go back. It hurt. But my parents kept saying that that was, that, you know, sometimes pain is needed to solve a problem. It it hurts when we run a mile, right? Like it, it pushes on your muscles when you lift weights, right? These are the, my um, faith muscles were being tested. I desperately wanted out of conversion therapy, but because I didn't really have an option to get out, um, I had multiple suicide attempts. I thought I could take a lot of pills and go to sleep and never wake up. And uh, (laughs) instead of the two Advil, I took three Advil thinking that that would be enough. And it wasn't, but it kind of gave me this idea that I had to keep trying. And so my mom would even find me um, up on a roof about to jump and she would tell me that she would love me again if I would just change. I uh, was so heartbroken that I told her that I had been healed so that the pain would stop. And immediately the conversion therapy stopped. It was as if everything was okay all over again. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Andrew is talking with Sam Brinton, who was subjected to conversion therapy as a child and lived to tell about it. Sam uses they-them pronouns and is now an activist working to ban conversion therapy nationwide. So how long were you in conversion therapy? About two years. Was it was it residential or were you living at home and just going there intermittently? I was just going about every other week. When this started, what was your relationship with religion and the religious community that your parents were part of? My faith was very, very strong and my convictions were very, very strong. They never really stopped even all the way through conversion therapy. Um... I would leave my faith at one point when fellow Christians would shun me for being gay the second time I came out. But I have basically always, for all of my life, been a person who believed that faith is a really important part of my life and how I interact with the world. So it was a very, very large portion of how I view the world and how I worked to make it better. So how did that change as you went through conversion therapy? It didn't. I felt that I was the sinner, but that if I tried hard enough, I could become close back again with God. So when you were in conversion therapy, did you have any sort what, what kinds of conversation did you have with the people who were administering it? I mean, the conversations with my conversion therapist ranged the gamut. So sometimes I was a horrible sinner who needed to pray harder. Sometimes it was 
hogwash science of my mother was too overbearing and my father was too distant. Sometimes it was the introspection. Why did I feel this way? Why do you think God would ever create someone as sinful as you? Why do you think that you made it through? My conversion therapist had a goal to change me. And this is different from the work that we do now, which is affirmation, letting someone know that they're beautiful the way they are and that we all have work to do to support our mental health, but that our sexuality in terms of our our love is beautiful, but that's not what I was hearing. So how did you react to what they told you at the time? I believed every word. I truly thought that my conversion therapist was doing everything he could to help me, and I wanted to do my part. So what effect did that have on you? Uh, You feel like a failure. This is the largest problem with conversion therapy, is that our suicide rates are astronomical compared to those who have not gone through conversion therapy. And this is in large part because you feel like a failure. Not only does your family think that you failed to do what they helped you set out to do, but you similarly feel like you couldn't do what your God, your family, and you ultimately wanted to do, which was to change. Now I understand there was nothing to change, but back then it was debilitatingly depressing. Did you tell your parents or anyone else what it was like? I don't remember telling my family very much. They had to know I lost weight. I became extremely agitated all the time. I would cry constantly, have tons of nightmares. But we didn't really talk a lot about what happened in therapy itself because they were my parents and they couldn't help me. I had to help myself. Did you ever ask your parents to stop sending you there? I did. And I think, again, they knew that they thought they knew that they were helping. And so they kept taking me back thinking that this was the best course of action that was going to save their child's immortal soul. Did you have have any support to help get you through this? I would say that... Oh, gosh. That's a really good question, Andrew. Um, I think... (laughs) I know it's probably not the answer you're expecting, but I think the thing that got me through it was God. (laughs) Um, I had so many nights where... I sobbed, sobbed for forgiveness. And on nights when I couldn't sleep because of how bad I felt about existing, there was always that voice in the back of my head saying that I still had a purpose, right? That I was, I was worthy of love. I think it's why I work at the Trevor Project now is this idea that I had a purpose. I I had something to give back. I just had to get through through this horrific part of my life um, that didn't ever have to happen. Let's be very clear that I did not need to survive that in order to do what I'm doing now. But there is something to be said for God. God helping me understand 
that I was still worthy of love. That, that wasn't coming from my family. That wasn't coming from my friends. That wasn't coming from my therapist. That was coming from something. And many people mock me for my faith. And I'm, I'm okay with that. But I still think it was an important part that got me through those, those horrible, horrible years. Were you in any way connected with the LGBTQ community at that point? Absolutely not. Nope. I did not know a single other LGBT person existed. So I take that to mean you also didn't have any interaction with any other conversion therapy patients? Correct. I was not in, sometimes people see like those group therapy sessions. Um, I was never, because that would have destroyed the idea, right? That would have, um, oh, yeah. their their program was built on the idea that I was the only one left. Um, so if as soon as I would have met somebody else, that would have gone out the window. I never even remember seeing someone before or after me come into or out of the therapist's office. That's an interesting thing. I just, you're the first person I've ever said that to. I just realized that I've never seen another person go in and out of that office. It was only me. Wow. So part of it was isolation. Correct. The idea that I was the only one made it so I never wanted to tell anybody. That was the thing. I, my friends still remind me of this, that when I got to college, I still thought I was the only gay person left alive. And so when I heard someone say that they were a lesbian, I literally screamed at the top of my lungs, trying to break everyone's eardrums around me because I thought that this person was about to die and I was trying to save them. And my friends got so confused and helped me understand that, oh my God, no, you were not the only one. Like, we've all been around you. We always thought you were gay. We just didn't thought you knew. And there was this, I, I came out in like a shower of glitter because it was, imagine <laughs> thinking that you were the last gay person left alive. Not that there weren't other gay people, which I think a lot of us feel that isolation, but the isolation was mandatory, right? Like it wasn't that you hadn't ever existed, is that you no longer existed, your people had been killed. And so my idea, when I started me, I mean, every single pride, every single pride event that I ever go to now, I just cry because it's the perfect rebuttal to the idea that that isolation worked. You touched upon this a little bit, but how did you finally get out of conversion therapy? I would lie to my mother um, during a suicide attempt to tell her that I was no longer gay. And instantaneously, the conversion therapy stopped and I was allowed to resume my life. So how did your parents feel about that? I think they were very relieved. Uh, I'll never know for sure, but they definitely smiled a lot more. I think my mother probably knew that I hadn't really changed, but was just glad that she didn't have to hear me crying all the time. So almost like she could pretend that you had changed? Exactly. That that lie felt better to her than the reality. So what effect did conversion therapy have on your self-image or other aspects of your mental health? Conversion therapy decimated any semblance of self-respect or self-confidence in that part of my life. I threw myself into my studies, um, would get full rides into tons of universities. And that was kind of how I managed it, right? Like 
I took four girls to prom uh, because my parents were nervous that I would uh, potentially do something wrong with one girl. And so as I was valedictorian, I took the next three girls who were in line with me and we all of us went to prom together. It was like the nerd squad. <laughs> um, and it it's fascinating because it's not like my self-confidence completely got shattered. It was just that I truly didn't think that that part of my life could exist. So it's gotten significantly better now. I work in LGBT activism, so clearly it's gotten better now. But there's this interesting part of my life that always revolves around the idea that what would have happened if all of those years hadn't been wasted time of doubt in my own identity, in my own existence. I'm getting married. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, It's going to be this beautiful moment where my conversion therapy will be shattered into a trillion pieces. But imagine how much simpler this wedding could have been if I had never had to come back from such trauma, right? Like, that's the weird part, is that it it didn't also, I mean, I, I don't talk about this all the time, but it doesn't just have emotional scars. It has physical scars. I was so young that my brain associated everything that I was that was happening to me as 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 natural and as normal. And so I told you about the electric shocks. I still, every single time I hold my fiance's hand, I still feel pricks of electricity because my brain was so young that it thought this was what every touch will be for the rest of your life. Now, that's not everyone's story, and I don't want to make anyone's story any less powerful. But I puked within seconds of my first kiss because it was so painful. It's no longer nearly as painful, and I'm very, I told you, I'm a, I'm a proud, gender-fluid, bisexual person. Like, I know who I love and how I am, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have consequences the conversion therapy definitely had consequences so it sounds like even now you're you're partially recovered but not all i tend to say that i don't think i'll ever be fully recovered but that that's a great goal to aim for in actuality uh it's very weird to say but um i like to think of myself as broken glass but broken glass can still be beautiful when in the form of uh stained glass cathedral windows, right? Like, I may always be broken, but that doesn't mean that I am in any way, shape, or form less valuable than I ever was. We're out of time, but we'll continue our conversation next time. Thanks so much, Sam. I'll be back anytime you need me. This has been part one of our interview with Sam Brinton. Sam was subjected to conversion therapy as a child and lived to tell about it. Sam uses they-them pronouns and is now an activist working to ban conversion therapy nationwide. This interview, along with the earlier parts of our series on conversion therapy, is available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Alex, Andrew, Dante, Lauren, Lucas, Max, Nico, Quinn, and Drew. Our executive producer is Mark Sofas. 
Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk to them on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting. LGBTQ resources. I'm Thorne. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.